Hi, and welcome to this week's call, an episode of Planet Positive. I'm Julian Guderlei, and as you guys know, Planet Positive is a global think tank, venture capital advisory, and accelerator. We're serving to address humanity's most pressing needs and its symbiotic existence with nature. And today, our guest is Tom Chi. I'm really excited to have Tom with us. Welcome, Tom. Yeah, we're going Tom, yeah, Tom was the founding uh, team member of Google X and is applying his expertise in de-risking breakthrough tech toward finding and funding companies that can radically improve both unit economics and environmental economics of planet impacting industries. So very much along the line um, of what you just shared, Peter. So the goal of the new fund and firm is to reinvent industry to help humanity become a net positive to nature. And so with these words, I'll hand it over to you, Tom. Um, walk us through what you're creating. Yeah, I'm gonna do a presentation and then we're just talk about stuff. So, ta-da. All right, you all can see my screen? Yep. Okay, so kind of starting from the beginning, uh, since the development of agriculture, oh, you can see how old the talk is because now the world population is 7.8 billion, but okay. Since the beginning of agriculture, uh, the human population has increased by a thousandfold, going from about 7 million back then to um, 7.8 billion today. And I think that when people, you know, contemplate this, a thousandfold increase in, in global population, immediately they start stressing about like, well, we're, we're way beyond our limits. There's just way too many people on the planet. There's no way that we're going to be able to live harmoniously, you know, given how many people there are. But I'd like to share a thought that might reframe things for you. Might not, but we'll talk about it. Um, so it turns out that if you were to take that 7.8 billion people and you, and you figure out how much human biomass is on the planet. So basically, if you were to, if everybody were to stand on a scale and you were to add up all the numbers from them stepping on their individual scales, uh, then the 7.8 billion people on the planet would collectively weigh about 350 million tons. So 350 million tons of collective biomass. And it turns out that uh, all the ants on the planet have roughly the same biomass, according to biologists that, that focus on studying ants. Um, so, you know, 350 million tons of humans, 350 million tons of ants. So in that way, we, we are similar in terms of how much kind of biological space that we take up on the planet. But a difference between humans and ants is humans eat less than 3% of their body weight per day. And ants eat roughly 30% of their body weight per day. So given this, it means that the, the total human population on the planet consumes about 10 million tons of food per day, and ants eat 100 million tons of food per day. Now, we are not having any conversations about how the world is overpopulated with ants, and if there weren't so many ants, we could figure out how to live sustainably on the planet. Even though ants every single day are eating 10 times more than the human population, literally consuming more of the earth. And the reason that we, that, that we don't worry about ants is it's not so much about the amount. It's not whether you have uh, 8 billion people or 3 billion people or 1 billion people. It's not the amount. Uh, it's, it, you know, it is the style in which you're consuming. Because ants successfully consume 10 times more of the, of the food, uh, of, of the planet food-wise every single day and somehow enrich the planet in the process of doing so. They aerate the soils, they recycle nutrients, they, 
They provide tons and tons of ecosystem services. And this is broadly the rule for all species on the planet. Pretty much every species that has been on the planet for an extended period of time is following this golden rule, which is net-net, their existence provides more ecosystem services than net ecosystem consumption. And in this, we actually have the, the formula for what, what humans uh, can aspire toward, really just to catch up with what all the other animals in the planet are doing. So what would it look like for us to go take this seriously? What would it look like for us to go uh, begin to redesign our economies so that our, the net ecosystem services of what we produce through the industrial economy is significantly larger than the ecosystem consumption that, that humanity uh, engages in? In other words, uh, I guess in maybe more normal language, um, how can humanity become a net positive nature? How can it be that every single year that we exist on this planet, the air, water, soil, and biodiversity of the planet is improved because we're here? So in order to go answer that question, we gotta kind of dig into uh, where we are right now. And things are not so good. Uh, I know these graphs are small, uh, but I, I kind of wrapped them all together into this, which I, I feel captures all the information and there's lots more studies that I can point you to if you if you want to dig into the exact state of the state today. But the way to go understand this chart is if you go all the way over to the left, you can see the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide before the Industrial Revolution. And this is the the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that all of life on the planet, you know, at least the planet that we know of, um, kind of evolved to be successful within. And then since 1750, since before the Industrial Revolution, we have burned a ton of coal, which has added this many gigatons and created this much change, 96 uh, parts per million change uh, net net to the amount of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, then we burned a bunch of oil. Uh, we burned a bunch of natural gas. We made a bunch of cement. And notably, we also uh, cleared a bunch of forests and you know drained wetlands. We we did significant land use changes that um, you know th that released a ton of carbon dioxide as well. And if you look on the left hand side, these are all human activities. And if all that happened were just the human activities, then we would already be at about 570 parts per million in the atmosphere, which is effectively an unlivable planet. But luckily, nature already had our back because the the ocean you know, in the same time period since the Industrial Revolution has absorbed almost 600 billion tons of carbon dioxide. The land has absorbed more than 600 billion tons of carbon dioxide, so in terrestrial biomass and soils and wetlands. And, you know, nature is trying its best. It's, uh, it's not able to totally keep up with the rate of our industrial economy. And what is left over is the debt that remains in the atmosphere. So that, that leaves us, um, you know, having jumped from 280 parts per million to more than four, the, the number is more like 415 now, but uh, when I made this deck, it was 409. Anyway, keeps on going up, that's important to note. But the remainder that, that nature hasn't been able to take care of uh, is still up in the atmosphere, basically driving climate destabilization. And down here, we kind of have the summary. So here's uh, how many billions of tons of carbon dioxide that we've added uh, into the atmosphere since 1750. Uh, I had mentioned that the oceans have absorbed almost 600 billion tons, which is uh, good for us in some ways, but 
was not been great for the ocean. Uh, you know, the absorbing 600 billion tons has led to the entire ocean becoming 30% more acidic. So think about how much water is there and what it is for that much water to become 30% more acidic. Well, that's what that carbon dioxide has done already. Uh, the, the, the story on land is, is not too bad. I mean, most of this went into plant soils and, and uh, you know, detritus, like, like wetland environments where there's anoxic decay. And then uh, the remainder, like I said, a trillion tons, so 1,000 billion tons, is still up in the, in the atmosphere driving climate destabilization. So that's kind of a snapshot of what things look like kind of in the abstract of, of big masses of carbon dioxide moving around the planet. But let's kind of jump into some other changes that are happening because of, of what's out there. So as mentioned, you know, the oceans are getting more acidic. Uh, and also, they are getting much warmer because water has got uh, more thermal mass than air, just means it can hold more heat than air. Then uh, the water has absorbed roughly 92 to 93% of the warming of the planet so far. And if the, if the oceans had not absorbed all this energy for us, then the atmosphere would already be 50 Fahrenheit hotter. So as much as we're kind of quibbling over like, well, you know, can we keep it to two degrees? C, you know, can we keep it to 1.5 degrees C? Uh, we should already thank the oceans for absorbing more than 90% of this heat. But the, the downside for ecosystems is that the animals in the uh, ocean, other than marine mammals, uh, most of them, their internal body temperature is basically the same as the temperature of the water. And as the oceans have absorbed those heat, um, especially organisms that can't move to colder water, like coral reefs, are basically getting wiped out. So we're on a trajectory to, to wipe out all shallow water reefs on the planet uh, within about 35 years. And after we kind of extinct corals from the planet, it'll take something like 10 to 15 million years for them to re-evolve. So we may never see them again in human history. And in the process of losing them, we will also lose about 25% of all marine species. And this is just to go, and a billion people will lose access to their main protein sources. Um, this is just to go emphasize that, that climate change is, and climate destabilization is not a thing that is just about the year 2100 and sea level rise. This is a thing that we are right in the middle of right now. And permanent changes um, you know, that will damage the planet for tens of millions of years are, are happening within our lifetime. So that was not that optimistic. The damage is large and the time is short. So, now we got to go back to the question, how could we possibly be net positive, given a trillion tons of carbon dioxide up in, you know, carbon dioxide debt up in the atmosphere, given the, the rapid collapse of ecosystems um, that, that are happening all around the planet? Well, in order to start answering that question, I first want to introduce you to an idea. And this is the idea of the invention catalyst. Now, I became very familiar with this idea as one of the founding team members of Google X. And uh, Google X is the, is the division within Google that created the self-driving car, Project Loon, Google Glass, uh, the new approach to artificial intelligence uh, based on semi-supervised learning called Google Brain, which is currently you know, um, processing your voice searches and image searches, uh, and a bunch more stuff. A uh, contact lens that can continuously measure your glucose levels. So, some pretty cool inventions, uh, but there's kind of the idea of an invention and there's an invention catalyst. An invention is basically 
there was a way that we were doing stuff before and you've made it 10% better. You know, oh, well, um, this, this uh, toaster toasts the bread really well in 10% less time. That, that might be considered a form of invention. But that invention improvement itself is not going to have large catalytic effects. You know, you save 10 minutes making your toast in the morning. An invention catalyst by comparison is something where the invention not only improves what the, what the object or focus of invention was, but also has catalytic effects across an entire uh, system um, well beyond the invention itself. So one example of this, so you, so you can really ground this concept, is the self-driving car. And why is this an invention catalyst and not just a slightly different car? Well, you guys are all familiar, anybody who owns a car is familiar with this. It turns out that most of the time that you own a car, you're not in it driving. And the, the average is roughly about 4%. 4% of the time for car owners, uh, they are using their, their car about 4% of the time. And that means 96% of the time you have uh, the cars are unutilized. You have 96% non-utilization of an asset. Now, in the world where you have a self-driving car, then you can imagine a world where people are, are not all owning cars, where a lot of, where self-driving cars kind of roll up for you when you need transportation, and you might be using it 4% of the time, but you, know, you don't need to own it the other 96% of the time. And what that means for each individual car is each individual's car utilization could go up quite a bit. So let's say instead of a, a typical car's utilization being 4%, uh, through ride sharing and on demand, we're able to go bring up the utilization of cars up to 40%, which still leaves plenty of time for charging the electric vehicle, maintenance, all that kind of thing. Well, all of a sudden, you know, if each car's utilization goes from 4% to 40%, you no longer need anything close to the, the number of cars that we currently have. You can imagine a world where we actually reduce the number of cars on the planet by 50%, 60%, 70%, and still have more transportation utility than we currently do uh, with cars. And that can have massive catalytic effects, uh, not just for driving around, but also for the design of cities. When you think about how much of the infrastructure of cities is set up for cars, um, including parking. And we used to joke in the Google X group as we were working on this stuff back in you know, 2010, that eventually as the self-driving cars got into full production and started rolling out, that we would go to all the cities of the world and find all the signs that said parking lot and erase the trailing letters so they just said park. We could reclaim you know, the 35% of cities that are used for parking and make natural spaces, community spaces, things that really support uh, the health of the city and not just um, parking lots and roadways. And think about the catalytic effects beyond that, you know, beyond the big changes to city design and life. And this all comes from a, a kind of core invention that has a catalytic element to it. So now that you guys are familiar with the idea of an invention catalyst, what happens if we bring the idea of an invention catalyst to the, the problem of helping humanity become a net positive to nature? So one example of an invention catalyst on that front is a company that, um, uh, so I, I, am a, a, I, I am the managing partner of a venture firm. This is one of our investments, so full disclosure on, on all the stuff, though I invested in this even before we had the fund. But this invention catalyst is basically um, uh, bas modifying drones to be able to rapidly accelerate 
environmental restoration. So what the drones, and these are early prototypes from several years ago. Uh, since then, we've planted more than, than 10 million trees, but, but uh, we'll start with where we are. Uh, sorry, we'll start with, with what the concept is. Basically, what this team has done is they have uh, invented drones, and each drone is able to go to 120 trees per minute. And if you do the math on that, you could take a swarm of a dozen of them in, an, in about a five-hour operating day, because we plant in an operating window when the light is out. In a five-hour operating day, you could plant a million trees with a single operator. Now, that is a, a, an invention that has catalytic potential. Why would that have catalytic potential? Well, suddenly, you know, um, because the speed of planting goes, uh, goes down by, um, the speed of planting is improved by a factor of 100, and the cost of planting is reduced by a factor of 10 through this technology, it suddenly becomes economically viable to start talking about planting tens of billions, hundreds of billions of trees. Now, what the heck does that have to do with any of the stuff we've been talking about so far? Well, it turns out that trees weigh between 2 to 20 tons at maturity, and they are roughly 50% carbon by mass. So when you go look at a tree, it, is, um, it might weigh 2 to 20 tons, but it also has one to 10 tons of carbon inside of it. And the mass of that carbon is almost entirely sequestered from the air. Actually, the mass of basically all plants that you see is more than 90% crystallized air. Depends on the plant, but you know, ranges like 90, 95%, 98%, depending on the species. Uh, but um, when you see a forest, what you are also seeing is crystallized carbon out of the atmosphere. And if the mass of a tree did not mostly come from the air, then there would be a tree-sized hole under every tree. But, the, but there isn't. Like the mass of the, the tree does not come from the soil. It is just crystallized air. Now, it turns out that if you had a trillion tons of carbon dioxide up in the atmosphere that you wanted to, to pay down, and a tree weighs 2 to 20 tons and represents 1 to 10 tons of, of, of carbon dioxide, then you've, you know, using something like 100 billion to a trillion trees, you could fully pay off the debt all the way uh, going back to before the Industrial Revolution. Now, how viable is it to go plant 100 billion or a trillion trees? Well, as of the, and these are based off of just direct operating stats from the team, so this is not a model. Um, if we were tasked with planting 20 billion trees a year, which means it would take us five, five years to plant 100 billion or 50 years on the long side to plant a trillion, then that would take only 9,000 drones, 450 staff, and about 80 million years in operation, uh, sorry, 80 million dollars a year in operational costs. And this is dramatically cheaper than a lot of other ways that we have been talking about uh, addressing climate change and has got some nice co-benefits of, of um, bringing back forests to areas that we have, have um, cut down forests in the past. So just as a footnote, if I'm talking about adding 100 billion or a trillion trees, Scientists estimate that over human history, we, uh, humanity has already cut down 2.5 trillion trees. So I'm talking about at the most just putting back 40% of the trees that we've cut down. And that, all of that is achievable with a, a very sensible operating budget. 9,000 drones is not even you know, um, a difficult manufacturing target. Like 10,000 is typically the level that we consider to be the start of, of real scaled manufacturing. So this is hardly moving out of batch manufacturing into scaled manufacturing, but if we were spending 80 million a year, we would do the, the full uh, manufacturing um, uh, tooling. Another invention catalyst, 
So this is fully robotic agriculture. Uh, this company is called Ironox. They do fully ro uh, robotic organic agriculture from seed to harvest. And you can see uh, here um, the robots growing a whole variety of, of crops here. Now, why is this interesting uh, in terms of an invention catalyst for the future of climate? Well, it turns out that the way that we're doing agriculture is also extremely net uh, emitting. And this can be through the destruction of carbon in soils because the way we've been doing agriculture has been burning down topsoil. And topsoil is dark because it has carbon in it. As we're burning down the topsoil, it actually means that we are, are losing that carbon in the soil. And every time you know, we till a field, it actually becomes a net emitter. And you can see this stuff from space, it's, uh, it's pretty dramatic. And agriculture as a sector is estimated to have as much net greenhouse gas impact between carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide as power generation. So all the electricity we use in the world, agriculture has got basically the same greenhouse gas footprint as all of that together. So if you are in this business and you think it's all wind and solar and that sort of thing, absolutely, let's do all that stuff. That helps to deal with, with um, energy generation. But relative to agriculture, that is just as big a pie. And if we can dramatically reduce that footprint, uh, then, then it, can, it can have catalytic effects. Now let's get real concrete about this in particular. So this approach, it attacks the three biggest cost drivers of, of uh, traditional agriculture. So when you look at large scale monocropping that we're doing all around the world, the three biggest cost drivers are inputs. So things like fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, uh, labor. So, and there's obviously lots of fights around migrant labor and blah, blah, blah. So putting aside all the political stuff, it also is a significant cost driver to that business. And then the third major cost driver is transportation. And on average in the US, your food travels, your produce travels about 1900 miles before it gets to your plate. So uh, there's a lot of food miles and carbon that is associated uh, and cost that's associated with doing all that. So between the three inputs, labor and and transportation, that represents about 90% of the cost of outdoor agriculture. The iron approach basically collapses all three of those prices. So on the input side, this approach uses 95% less water, 90% less nutrient input, no pesticides, no herbicides, no fungicides. Because we basically replace the sides, the things that, uh, that are trying to prevent you know, a spread of pestilence, we, play, we replace that with robotic labor. It turns out that if you can have a robot look at every plant every day, you can cut off, you know, you can, you can stop right at the root any pestilence that is starting to spread. And then you can actually not treat all the things with the harmful chemicals that we have just gotten. I don't want to say we've gotten used to it because we, we know glyphosate causes cancer. We know that, you know, there is hormonal disruption, you know, to prepubescent folks, you know, all around the world. So I don't say, I don't want to say that we've gotten used to it. We can just stop using all the, the stuff that is, is damaging for human health uh, in the process of growing and in the process, save a huge amount of money on those inputs. On the labor side, well, you know, we already have 90% of the tasks done by robots. So the labor cost is going down uh, quite significantly. And the team is on trajectory to have something like 97 to 99% of tasks done uh, robotically. So uh, obviously labor costs will be near zero. And then the last category is transportation. So this is, this is meant to be, so this was our test facility. Our, our new facility is actually in a greenhouse and everything is continuing to, to run really well. So this, 
is should be understood as a type of greenhouse automation. And from the transportation perspective, any place you can set up a greenhouse, you can have this ongoing supply of food um, coming into cities. So we don't want to site this in the middle of the city. The the you know the amortization of the real estate costs it, it it affects your your overall project costs in a way that's undesirable. Uh, not that it's it couldn't be competitive, but you would want to be more economically competitive than than putting it in the middle of the city. So what you do is you basically site these greenhouses maybe 30, 50 miles outside of the city. And then you can go implement a harvest in the morning, eat at lunch kind of world where you have reduced transport chain, refrigeration chain, your food is, is, is fresh and does not need to go through those processing steps. You don't need to worry as much about contamination because no human being touches this food from seed to harvest. Uh, you know, there are humans in the process, but they do more of the later like handling things when they're already in a package. Um, but anyway, this could have huge catalytic effects. And very lastly around this, a, a, an important catalytic effect around redoing agriculture is we currently use 50% of the habitable land on the planet to go grow our food between meat production and, and cropland. And the, the major destruction of ecosystems, remember that big land use chunk that was causing major carbon emissions? Uh, these days that is coming almost entirely through uh, the need for more land for agriculture. So there's this mistaken notion, oh, there, there's these evil timber co companies cutting down the Amazon for wood. Nope, they don't even bother. Like the majority of Amazon destruction uh, is just burning down the Amazon to go, um, uh, to go plant soybeans and graze cattle. So truly based on food production. So an approach like this could reduce the, the geographic footprint required to grow our food by roughly a factor of 30. And if you could go from using 50% of the planet's land area to go grow your food to 30x less, so I don't know, 1.7% of the land area of the, the world to grow your food, then you have a world where you don't need to constantly be encroaching on nature, uh, you know, destroying ecosystems, risking pandemic uh, in order to go produce food. All right, another also related to food, because like I said, the food production is split between, um, uh, between animal agriculture and, and crops, then cellular agriculture promises to get to radically better unit economics um, than factory farming, but doing so in a way that doesn't require any animal suffering and can go and produce uh, meat in a way that, is, so this is not things that are simulated to taste like meat, this, this looks like chicken because it was chicken cells that divided until uh, you could go deep fry it. And then this looks like a meatball because these were beef cells that basically divided until you're able to make a meatball out of it. So it tastes like beef because it's beef. It tastes like chicken because it's chicken. And through um, kind of the industrial automation of cellular agriculture, we should be able to produce as much meat as, as we would want demand-wise without needing to take the, the massive land area and um, that is required and also without the suffering that we see in factory farms. Uh, okay, now uh, this is not to say that we will completely stop growing on the land because there is another beneficial property when we do do outdoor agriculture in a specific way. So when we do ag outdoor agriculture in a way that is focused on soil regeneration, then this also has catalytic potential as well. And circa right now, um, so remember we're trying to pay down a $1 trillion 
ton carbon dioxide debt up in the atmosphere. Right now at this moment, there is 9.9 .9 trillion uh, tons carbon dioxide equivalent stored in the soils. And as mentioned before, like when you see a healthy soil, it's dark and it's actually dark because of carbon. When soils are unhealthy, they're lighter or whitish or reddish or chalky. Uh, they don't have very much carbon in them. And this is basically a snap from Gabe Brown's farm. And I went out there with a team of soil scientists. We did a hundred different soil cores. And this, has been, this work has been going on for, for you know, some years now, but I just happened to come in at the same time as the contingent. Well, I plan to come in at the same time as the soil science contingent. And during this measurement, which was done in 2017, they had an average, and you can see it right here, of 29 inches of Horizon A soil, which is the richest, most crumbly topsoil, represents the most carbon sequestration. And he built two and a half feet of topsoil average across his land, landscape in less than 20 years. That, if the, if um, agriculture overall were to go adapt, adopt those, just to go pay down a trillion tons in just a couple decades. All right. So uh, another catalytic activity. So I'm an investor in a company called Coral Vita. Uh, we are, the plan is to basically work with heat resistant uh, coral that has been selectively bred. Um, you speed up their, their, the expansion of their growth using a technique called hyperfragmentation. You can look this up uh, or we can answer this in the Q&A. This would be maybe three or four minutes to explain. And then, um, then basically develop a robot, which we recently got an NSF grant to, to go do. And the robot is about to do its first, you know, uh, kind of end-to-end -end dry run of actually successfully planting into a hard substrate next week. Uh, but you basically use robotic automation to go speed up the, the redeployment of these heat-resistant nursery corals uh, back into the environment in a way that might be able to see out the next, um, the, the next 100 years or more, which is roughly the time we're going to need in order to, to ride out the the extended time period that the oceans will be at an elevated temperature. And this is great because Brian Van Herzen is actually in the audience, but this is another, um, the, this is another invention catalyst uh, from the Climate Foundation. And this, uh, the idea here is to build these large marine permaculture arrays where you are growing um, seaweed forests. This is a picture of kelp, which, which uh, kelp grows extremely quickly. It can grow a meter a day in the middle of its growth cycle. Um, and it, in the process of growing, it's basically sequestering carbon. The, the ecosystems that it supports, the habitat it supports for marine life, uh, all those organisms are also sequestering carbon. And to the extent that you can take some of that and have it you know, uh, go to the bottom of the ocean in marine snow or, or be covered at the bottom of the ocean into anoxic decay, then you basically get to permanent carbon storage through marine permaculture arrays. And uh, each one of these arrays uh, pull down, though Brian will probably have the latest stats on this, roughly uh, 3,500 tons of carbon dioxide per uh, square kilometer um, per year. And also can be done in a way that produces a, a lot of, of uh, cool products you might be able to bring to market. All right, now we're gonna talk about one last kind of um, catalyst, last accelerator. So where are we here? Here we are in Quito, Ecuador. And it turns out that I spoke at a conference almost exactly two years ago. I think this is like the, yeah, it's, yeah, it was this month, two years ago. And I was speaking at a conference, basically giving the same talk, but it was the, it was the same time um, that 
that another conference, which was focused on the rights of nature, uh, was convening. Because it had been 10 years since Ecuador had a, this major economic collapse. They, they adopted the dollar, they moved off the peso, adopted the dollar, and they rewrote their constitution. And one thing that they added to their, the constitution, and it's, it's like 40 words, it's not much, but it basically said that uh, you know, nature has fundamental rights, like a river has a right to flow, a, a forest has a right to regenerate itself, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a great set of inspiring words to write in a constitution, cool. But when you add 10 years to it, what had happened in that subsequent 10 years is that had been challenged in court a number of times and nature won, not every time, but a number of times. And what that basically led to is the accumulation of case law, which is now leading to different policy and environmental uh, approaches across that entire country. And that shows you how much can happen from a tiny shift in consciousness. If you basically say, well, hey, um, rivers are a resource, you know, forests are a resource, it's our right to take as much as we want, and they have no rights, then that, that consciousness will approach the planet in a particular way. But 40 words in a constitution can absolutely go change that consciousness when fully, you know, um, adopted and kind of bounce through the modern systems of case law and economics, like, like we will sort it out if we're willing to have our consciousness shift a bit. And, oh man, there's the, this is another great example of this. Um, yes, I'll cover it really quickly. So another team that I um, have been a supporter of over the years, I've been working with them since late 2012. This is a, a company called Kingo Energy and they basically brought uh, electricity to a bunch of communities that have been living on less than a dollar to a day. Um, roughly a million people are, have gotten access to electricity for the first time in their lives and has improved their livelihoods in a bunch of ways. Now, putting that aside for a moment, like what does this have to do with the change of consciousness? Well, anybody who's in the hardware business and, and my formal training is physics, electrical engineering, and I've built a bunch of hardware devices and I've built a bunch of software uh, as businesses. Um, so I'm used to what the hardware game is. And what the hardware game is, is basically, it's all about this stuff called um, bomb optimization, build of materials optimization. And what that is, is how much do all the, the subcomponents cost? How much does the labor cost? And you add that all together, and that basically is the cost for the manufacturer. And that's your bomb. And then you compare that to how much you can go sell it at retail or wholesale. And the difference between that cost and the bomb is how much profit the company is able to, uh, the profit potential that's there for the, 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 the OEM to go access. Now, what that has meant is we have just lived through about 50 years, I think it's roughly that, yeah, no, it's more than that, because since the 1950s, about 70 years, where this sort of consciousness around bomb optimization has dominated hardware design. And what it means is every time you go look at your components, you ask yourself, could I replace this with a cheaper component, which would improve my profitability at point of retail sale? And this is why we have these sophisticated things like the cell phone, where if your cell phone is three years old, it's almost definitely garbage, right? Because you know, people have been optimizing these bombs and, and, and making it a little bit cheaper, a little bit cheaper, a little bit cheaper, a little bit cheaper. Then for some reason, this button is stuck. For some reason, you know, uh, the screen doesn't come on. For some reason, and it's, it's purposeful. Like basically, we applied our engineering skills toward making a thing that would last long enough for people to not complain 
uh, but be the cheapest possible thing so that you can maximize your profit at point of sale. Now, getting back to the story then, what happened here in terms of the shift of consciousness? Well, we changed the model here. We modified the hardware uh, because these folks could not pay retail prices anyway. Remember, they live on a dollar or two a day. This at retail would need to be something like $130. Uh, the, the solar electric boxes that, that go in and bring light to their entire home and bring power to their entire home cost like $130, completely out of reach for people that are living on a dollar or two a day. So we basically changed the hardware and we made it so that it's pay-as-you-go solar. And in the process, you know, we, we also priced it so that the cost of uh, purchasing a week of power was less than the cost of a week of candles because they were already, they were using candles for light at night. So we said, well, let's price it so they're actually saving money even within the first week of having the thing. Now here's the, where the shift in consciousness comes in. If your model is not, let's make all the money at retail up front, but actually, you know, people pay as, as they go, saving money compared to what they were doing before. Um, but, you know, uh, but like buying electricity as they need. If you are paying as you go, you actually incentivized, the engineers are incentivized to make this product last as long as possible. It's the opposite incentive. And, I'll tell you that it did not take us long. It took us about two and a half weeks to reverse all the bomb optimization. And instead of asking, what is the cheapest thing that we can put in there that will still work? We would ask ourselves, well, which components are most likely to fail first? And let's replace them with the things that will last a long time. And right now we would estimate the mean time to failure of these boxes at something between 35 to 40 years. In practice, they've been out in the field in humid Central America, these are not electronics friendly environments, um, you know, for more than eight years, and we have had almost no failure of hardware. Um, so wow. we didn't require different engineers, we just needed to go change our consciousness a little bit around that, that model, and it led to totally different results. Okay, I think we're on the last slide. Time to go to Q&A. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Tom. This was very insightful and, you know, so eloquently put. I think we have we have a lot of Q and A's. Um, please feel free to either write them in the chat, or or simply unmute yourself, and we'll we'll go around. Um, I'm fascinated by what you shared, Tom. You know, making not making no footprint as humans, but creating a graceful footprint and learning to be in sync with the natural carbon cycle. So yeah. where you, where, you where can to start? think about nature as a collection of metabolic processes, and our industry can accelerate the health of those metabolic processes or we can wait till the end when the metabolic process has created wealth and we can just try to mine all the stuff out of the, the thing at the end. And it's actually not engineering wise harder to go and work on accelerating the, the metabolic processes. Just like you know, with Kingo, it wasn't harder for us to go and, and design the hardware a little differently. We just needed to shift the consciousness a bit about what we were trying to achieve. Powerful. So um, Brian van Herzen just uh, shared a, a question in the chat. Brian, maybe you want to ask it uh, into the group. Yes, definitely. Tom, that was a great presentation. Thank you so much for that. I particularly love the chart that really showed the fossil fuel use, the land use, and all those other pieces, and then the oceans, the soils, and the atmosphere bringing us back down. But what's interesting is trying to reconcile that with the 2.5 trillion trees, which I love the inspiration. I'm just wondering, you know, if we've actually taken out 2.5 trillion trees already, but our land use impact only hit like, I don't know if it was 20% um, of our 
anthropogenic emissions. How does that reconcile that a trillion trees would get us back to net zero? Um, just trying to understand how that math works a little better. Is it 1 trillion? Is it 2.5 trillion? Why don't we see a bigger land use effect if we've really taken out 2.5 trillion trees? You also need to go factor into how much has been sequestered that the land has already been trying to grow back. So when right. you look at the, 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 bio, um, the terrestrial biomass contribution to sequestration, it's already over 600 billion tons. Right. Like, so if we get you to add those together, that, that basically yeah. is larger. Uh, relative so we, to the amount of land that is used for, for human, so the actual physical built environment, like covered with buildings and cities, uh, in terms of the relative to the total land area on the planet, is less than 1%. The most of our land use footprint is through agriculture. That makes sense. So if we, if we do get a trillion trees in the ground in the next decade or three, um, is, do we get close to 1,000 gigatons, or what's the potential? So you can, it depends on what tree you're growing where, but you can get easily into the hundreds of billions of tons. Okay. Will, we, will we blow past a trillion tons in 30 years? Probably not. Yeah. Okay, so it's clearly more than one wedge. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for going a bit deeper on that. We had another question from Ruben, uh, Ruben Walker. Go for it. Thanks a lot. Um, Tom, fantastic. I, I think you've got a remarkably comprehensive portfolio um, that on its own could really, really have a massive impact on the planet. Um, and so my compliments to that. Um, also really, really like what you were saying on the recognition of the bomb. I, I think that's something that has slipped into capitalism in a very insidious way and I, I, I love that you're you know uh, talking about that um, I've got a particular interest in, 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 in the forestry side as well um, and particularly on the demand side for the wood because there is a huge and growing problem in terms of uh, you know increased population needing wood and increasingly charcoal when they urbanize uh, for their basic energy consumption. And that tends to be, the, you know, the, the thermal uh, energy for households is in many cases, say 99 plus percent of the kilowatt hours that they consume. Um, and unfortunately, you know, fantastic companies like Kingo cannot really address that because to, to address thermal energy consumption with, with, with solar is, is just not viable for probably the next couple of decades. Um, is that something you're, you're taking into consideration? Because my worry would be that, you know, these, these millions or billions of trees um, would probably be harvested before they even became useful in the sort of sequestration process. Yeah, so you're pointing at something, and, and if you're in forestry, you will totally get what this is. But we, we basically work off of a three-stage loss model. So when we are planting, you know, uh, and restoring ecosystems, there's some losses that you have in germination. In our tech right now, is basically comparable to nature planting that same seed in that same environment. So our germination losses are basic, we're there, it's totally fine uh, in terms of the tech. The next stage of the loss model is uh, predation losses. So when a new plant is, is small, then little critters can eat it. And then the third one, to your point, is human uses. So like when you, whenever you're doing large scale reforestation, afforestation, or any, you know, any sort of significant ecological restoration at scale, and you are anywhere within 100 miles of human beings, you've got to go think about that third loss model. And relative to that third loss model, there is myriad approaches. Some of those, for example, might be to dedicate part of the, the replanting for agroforestry. 
and have that be something that is economically important for the communities that are nearby. Some of it might be to grow materials that can be, that can be made into charcoal that are just faster growing and, and faster to, to regenerate. So you don't need to bring down you know, woody biomass in order to go do it. Uh, but like, yes, if you are within 100 miles of humans, you do need to get clear on how you're going to address the third step in the WASP model. Great. Did that answer the question, Ruben? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'd, I'd love to talk further with you about it, Tom, but I'll, I'll maybe get in touch with you after the, after the Absolutely. Session. Great. We had another question that kind of uh, takes the ocean uh, back into consideration and the, the biomass of seaweed. And so that comes from Ryan Hunt. Ryan, are you able to turn on your camera and ask it yourself or do you want me to, to share the question? So I'll just share the question. Oh, there he is. Uh, yeah, here we go. Sorry, you guys. So the question is about the difference between using terrestrial crops versus aquatic species where you can many times create a higher photosynthetic efficiency with uh, phytoplankton compared to say a, a terrestrial tree. So how does that fit into your model of regeneration looking at uh, not just cultivating it, but also being able to sequester that biomass into some long-term uh, durable use? Yeah, so you can think about biological sequestration in four categories. One of them is, you know, large terrestrial biomass like, like uh, forest. You know, second is um, carbon that goes into soils. And then when you go to the aquatic side, then I kind of call it ocean micro and ocean macro. So you're kind of talking about ocean micro. Um, relative to, to the sort of stuff that we do in you know, uh, relative to being able to engineer effectively our relationship to the oceans, um, we're just at an earlier spot in the tech curve. Like we're just a little bit more skillful at building stuff above, you know, ab uh, above the water. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't get there. Like this is, you know, like my team has been, uh, the, the team that got the NSF grant that I'm doing the engineering leadership for, like um, we have gone from there is no coral planting robot to next week, we're doing our first trial where a thing is swimming down there and putting a test coral into a hard substrate. And like, okay, yes, I mean, it, it can be done, but we, we really need to go put the investment dollars, the engineering effort, the scientific thinking into a successful um, and repeatable engineering work that can, that can work on both ocean micro and ocean macro. Thank you, very interesting. So there's a lot of potential. We just are farther back on the engineering curve. So we got to work on that over the next decade or, or two. Right, which and goes hand in hand with the acceleration and evolution of consciousness, just as you, you pointed at the end there. Mark Barish asked the question of what happens to the smallholder farmers in the robotic agriculture paradigm. And I would say to go understand agriculture well, you've got to break it into three subcategories. So one of them is large scale uh, monocropped row crop production. And this is mostly a commodity business because we mostly do that in order to make animal feed and fuel. And we use some of it to go make processed foods. So that's where corn syrup and a bunch of other things come from. Then there, and uh, basically those farms are 5,000 acres and above, 2,000 acres at the minimum. Then there are a bunch of the farmers that actually grow most of the food that we eat uh, in the Western world. And th those are operating on farms between, you know, uh, let's say 50 to 2,000 2, acres, and they aren't, you know, uh, so mechanized. And then the third category is smallholder farmers around the world, which are, are growing the, you know, the majority of the food for the people in those nations. And 
the, there's going to be different solutions for each one of those categories. It's not like robotic agriculture is going to want to invade a place immediately that doesn't have consistent access to electricity, that doesn't have consistent access to roads. Like that's not how uh, this will play out. So you got to go break those categories separately. And I have a separate talk that that was uh, put on the uh, that was hosted by the Tuck School of Business, where I talked about the future of agriculture and all three of the categories. Yeah, thank you. There's a follow-up question from Joe. Joe, you wanna you wanna maybe chime in and ask it? I think it's really highly relative to consider the perspective of indigenous people and and just the cultural aspect to maybe not over automate everything. Yeah. So my, what I wanted to ask you, Tom, is there not a hybrid model where you can work to empower local communities and get them engaged and, and they can create a livelihood through doing the planting or, or either if it's in the South Pacific, working with the coral uh, replanting and in the forest, working with the tree planting, isn't there not a way of engaging them? So they're now making livelihood and that's going to incentivize them as well to maintain the habitat. So there absolutely is. And we already have worked with indigenous people around seed collection. And it turns out that when indigenous people collect the local varietals that are adapted for the microclimate and they can use their eyes in order to go figure out which seeds to bring to us versus not, then the germination rates can be um, you know, two times better. Sometimes they're 20% better, but they can be up to two times better because they're just better at identifying the seeds that will work. And that's kind of an upfront part that indigenous people can be involved in. And we've done that in Australia and we've also done that in parts of South America. So uh, we, we have a sense that that, that model can can work around seed collection. And then there's another role for indigenous people in terms of the long-term monitoring and maintenance. Because you know, our, our drones can do the work when they're physically there, right? And like it's it's useful for local communities to be bought into, you know, the, that kind of ecosystem coming back in through the monitoring and maintenance practice. And of course, if they need our help to go do a refresher, that's great. We can swing back in. But you want actually the local community to be doing the 90% you know, once the ecosystem is starting to come back. So it, it's certainly not mutually exclusive. And one more question. When you're doing the planting of the trees, are you doing diverse varieties? Are you- Yes, we are always doing... work with local ecologists and sometimes indigenous people, depends on if they are there or not. Because we also work on remote la mining lands and there, there aren't people around. But, um, but when, you know, uh, when there are, then we'll consult with both. When there aren't, then we just work with local ecologists. And they basically recommend both the, both the biodiversity above land and below land. So we actually both work on the mycelial mixes, the, the microbiome mixes in the mm -hmm. soil, and we also work on the correct diversity above land that matches the stages of ecological succession. And, and are any of the crops food crops? And if so, are any of those crops another form of income? Like, for, exa for example, cacao. There's a group, a company called OriginalBeans.com that makes cacao in rainforests and empowers indigenous people. It's a premium product. Are you yeah, looking at other revenue yes. models? Absolutely. So, the, so this is what I was saying before in that three-stage loss model. When you get to a environment where there are human influences around, because look, if you put something really in the middle of nowhere and no one goes there, then you don't need to, uh, you don't need to be concerned as much about the, the, the human use part of the loss model. But yes, when human beings are around, then, then agroforestry, including cacao, is one of the, the most classic examples of something that is, is best grown in agroforestry context. Um, then, then yes, those are on the table to be able to go deal with the third stage of the loss model.
Awesome. There's a few more questions, but before we come up to the top of the hour, I'd love to ask a question back to you, Tom, about how the Planet Positive community can support you at this point in time and with the opportunity that's, that's at hand here. So one thing that's real obvious, and I guess I need to say it, is that um, we are doing this work every day at my venture firm called At One Ventures, and we're still raising our first fund right now. So we're at uh, 86 million out of a target of between 100 to 150 million first fund size. So if you know high net worth individuals or uh, you know, people that do fund to fund investments, uh, family offices, foundations that, that want to go uh, invest, because these are investments, like these are, all, um, these are all commercially scalable businesses that we invest in, um, then yeah, getting them in contact with me would be great. I'll, I'll put my email in the chat uh, if anybody is interested in reaching out on that front. That's real obvious. But beyond that, we are basically looking for these types of efforts as well. So if you are doing something where the, the work that you do has radically better unit economics, like such that it would disrupt the industries that are already entrenched and has got way better environmental economics, then our team would love to go take a look at that. Oh, you can, sorry, I, I think I typed this in the wrong thing. So my email address is here. And then my, the, you can go learn about the venture firm at uh, over here. And that will give you a lot more detail than I will be able to say in a, in a minute or two. Awesome, thank you for dropping the email and also the at one ventures domain. I think there's one more question from Chris about um, alcohol and if alcohol fits me a model um, using organic waste for alcohol production and then using alcohol as a non-carbon emission fuel replacement. Yeah, I mean, there is a big question of how we go and get to um, the liquid fuels that we need. So that for, for terrestrial things like, you know, cars and trucks and what have you, then the mass electrification, uh, though there's obviously a lot of things to go work on in terms of environmental damage from, from, uh, from mining operations required to get the materials for that. But when you get to aviation fuels where weight matters a lot, you know, um, you know there can be some electrification in shipping fuels, but you have a, you have a energy density issue. But when you get to you know some of these other use cases, then absolutely we need we do need to find a carbon neutral or carbon negative uh, solution for for those transportation types. Will it be alcohol? I, I got some theories, but it it you know. <laughs> Could be, yeah. Awesome. So we're coming up at the end of the hour there. Peter, is there, is there something you want to chime in uh, as the founder of you know, Planet Positive Ventures and uh, anything you'd love to add? Uh, no, I'm just really so grateful for the, uh, the work Tom is doing. He's a brilliant man. And um, yeah, I just want to say thank you for giving us his time this morning. And um, if anyone wants to support his mission, then we're happy to um, put you in touch. Yes, and somebody asked if they can see the ventures. The, the ventures, you can get them on the site, but the direct link to them is here. And, you know, there, I think there's eight or nine things that are up there already, but those are all things that we placed in the first year. So, so you know, to go support the fund is, you know, to go support the allocation of roughly 20 to $25 million of capital in these transformative 
uh, companies every single year. Um, so that'd be cool. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tom. And thank you everyone for joining today. This really was a very empowering, um, you know, insight uh, this full hour to, to understand we're on a really good way to harmonize with nature in the way we build and the way we think, and then in the way we interconnect. Thank you so much, Tom. If everything goes well, we'll catch up with ants within 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Good to see Thank everybody. You. Thanks, Have Tom. Have a great day. Bye, everyone.